All right, have a seat, everyone. All right, if everyone, we want to welcome everyone. I know there's people coming from different areas, so and people are streaming online. So welcome to our day of understanding the upright faith. It's important that every church has two components to its ministry. Number one is preaching, that people would receive the gospel and that people would develop a personal relationship with the Lord. And the second thing is teaching. Today is a heavy teaching day. And I know sometimes we're not always in, in the mode of, 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 of teaching and taking notes and reading texts. We're used to, you know, being encouraged. Well, you're going to receive encouragement, but today is a day of teaching. And today, I'm hoping that we can give our, attentant, our attention to the, the slides, and everyone is going to receive handouts for the slides. Our church and this area went through a very, very rough time um, two years ago, and it was a time in which the devil himself was trying to destroy his people. He was trying to destroy the people of God, and Hosea tells us that my people perish for what? Lack of knowledge. Lack of knowledge. And so today, we are trying to overcome that lack of knowledge and to know the truth and to know what it is that our Orthodox faith has given us our church, the Holy Church of God, is a perfect church. The Holy Church of God is a perfect church. You say, that's a bold statement. Why? Because it's the body of Christ, and the body of Christ is being sanctified through His Spirit, through the sacraments of the church, through repentance. The church of God is a holy church. Mistakes can be made because it's a theanthropic organism. Theanthropic means theo, which is God. Anthropos, what's anthro mean? Man. So it's a God-man organism. There's weaknesses within the church, but the church, the sanctified, glorious church of Christ is perfect. And that's, that's something that we, we establish. I want to open up our Bibles just really briefly. I don't want to take too long because we have a lot to learn today. To 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Verse 15, and then we'll read chapter 3, verse 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. It says this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. This word here, tradition, in Greek is called paradosis. Paradosis means... It is the tradition or the teaching of the church given from maybe a Western point of view. If you look at this word, there's a couple bad words in there. What are the bad words in verse 15? If you're coming from a Western point of view, looking at the Eastern church, and you look at this verse, what are the bad words in there? Tradition is a bad word. Yeah, whether by word. So what do you mean word? We're talking about how the church has passed down a tradition and a spirit through word, okay, and through our epistle. So there's the written word of God, and then there's the what? The spoken tradition that is passed down from generation, which we find in the church fathers. 
which was passed down in the life of the church, in the celebration of the church, this word has been passed down. Second, Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 says this. St. Paul kind of puts his foot down and he says this. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the tradition which he received from us. There is a tradition that has been passed down from generation to generation and generation to generation. And anyone that walks disorderly and says something that is outside the general spirit of the church. Recently, not recently, maybe a year ago, we heard that the criticism of the movement that was going on is that there's something wrong with the spirit of the church. Okay? Actually, St. Paul talks about this spirit of the church and how it's, it's, there's a spirit that is also passed down. It is not just words. It's not just writings and books. There is a spirit within the church. I believe it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Maybe, yes? 2 Corinthians chapter 11. What is my reference? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it talks about this concept of passing down the spirit of the church. And there is a spirit within church. It's a living spirit because it's a living organism. It doesn't die. It doesn't die because it's alive by the Spirit of God. For us to say that the church would die would be to confess that the Holy Spirit dies. Right? It would be to confess that the Holy Spirit dies. So we have to be aware of some of the things that we hear and we take them and we say, you know what? I see mistakes. Maybe this priest said something or this whatever said something. I read the wrong writing from here. You say, maybe the church is dead. No. The Holy Spirit of God does not die. So today we are going to have a lot of teaching a lot of reading, a lot of participation. So I hope everyone can engage and know that what we're doing today is not attacking a person. We are taking a teaching that has been spread, or that is the root of a teaching. And the teaching is being attacked, not a person. All are welcome to the body of Christ. All are being invited back into the body of Christ if they've severed themselves from the body of Christ. And so this is a call of love. It's not a war. It's not a war. This is, this is a call of love. For God to open and enlighten our eyes. Glory be to God forever. I'm going to ask Abuna Mark to step up and to share with us um, the kind of outline of this today. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So we have main, today four main topics. The first one, which is the upright phase, I will try in a very simple way to introduce what you already know, but we need to re- remind ourselves with it this morning to see later when we put some message from the writings that we are going to discuss today to see is it really orthodox? Is it even really Protestant? So we will put in front of our eyes the upright face first, and then I will let you judge the writings in the next uh, three talks. So the first one, before we start, we need to know as Abuna said, that the church is a loving, caring mother calling everyone back. We are not attacking any person. It's not about people. It's about the teaching that we have received, paradisos, the tradition which has been handed over from a generation to generation. So what I would like to cover in the first talk, everyone will take a couple of minutes, don't worry. Looks like a big list. So how to show that our teaching is a traditional teaching. As Abuna said, 
In the West, it seems a dead word. For us, it's a very live and dynamic word. It's a Trinitarian teaching, incarnational teaching, scriptural teaching, sacramental teaching, Eucharistic, ecclesial, synergetic, and then at the very end, we'll add three points just for the sake of our discussion this evening. How that the church is an ascetic church living an ascetic life, but why we live this ascetic life? Is it because we seek this life or is something behind it? One, two, uh, one more thing, do we have to form Christ in us? The question is quite weird, but it's the core teaching, as we'll see in a few minutes, in many of the books that we are going to discuss today. At the very end, it's a very simple, important rule. You know it, but we remind ourselves once more to make sure that what we are going to discuss, is it according to this rule or against this rule? So, St. Paul says, sorry, Jude says, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write you concerning our common salvation, he wants to share good news with them. As Abuna was saying, discover the teaching were messed up. When? At the very early days of the church. I found it necessary to write you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And this is our trial today with your prayers, with your participation, to find out, to dig down, and to see how the real church fathers taught us such things. So first thing, it's a traditional teaching. It's not something new. It's not only something in the New Testament. It's not only for the Orthodox. It was beyond that. Even in the Jewish tradition, there was a tra tradition. We have many traditional books in the Jewish tradition, and we are helping them to understand the scriptures. So Amos was telling us this, and the Lord said to me, Amos, what do you see? And I said, a blum line. I will explain the blum line in a moment because it's quite alien to your culture. Then the Lord said, behold, I am setting a blum line in the midst of the people of Israel. I will not pass by them anymore. This is the blum line. It's very common in Egypt. I'm sure maybe you have seen it here, but not quite often. When a builder is building a wall, he has this plumb line to make it straight. So the Lord, from the beginning, was putting a plumb line to his people in the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Let me share with you now St. Irenaeus. We'll find something in the next talk that the word church fathers is always common. But unfortunately, it's always misquoted. When I say the church fathers, and I have to tell you two things. Who is this father, and where did he say such things? Don't accept it vaguely, the father said. Sometimes we say it because it's not in my mind now, fine. But it's not, it couldn't be the whole rule. Whenever I'm mentioning a father, the father said, and then I say whatever I want. We'll see it in a moment, or in the next talk, 48 times, saying, as the church father said, and just immediately after that, a big lie or a joke. You will see it in a moment. So St. Irenaeus, quoted by Eusebius in his very famous book, Historia Ecclesia, volume 20, paragraph 4 and 7. I remember, here he is telling us what does it mean, tradition. Tradition is not something imitating someone else. It 
is I know exactly what has been handed over from a generation to generation. Here is a description of Irenaeus to something in his life. I remember the event of those days more clearly than those of recent date. For the things that have been learned from childhood grew up, grew up with the soul and become one with it. So I can describe even the place where the blessed Polycarp sat and held this course. The blessed Polycarp was a disciple of St. John the Evangelist for 30 years. And now Renaeus received from him the same teaching. He knew how he set up, how he was talking to them, how he came in and went out, his manner of life. So he was handed over not a teaching, it's a dynamic life. And personal appearance, the discourses which he delivered to the people, and how he reported his communications with John, John the evangelist and with the others who had seen the Lord. So if now we are concerned about a certain teaching, we'll find out that St. John lived with St. Polycarp 30 years, and now St. Renaeus is telling us what has been handed over to him. So when we speak about St. Renaeus, we call him the father of the tradition. Why? He is an eyewitness receiving the message from generation to generation. Very important rule. By Saint Vincent of Lerns. He died in the year 450. You'll find every single word I'm sharing with you. It has a reference, and you can go back to the reference whether it's a book or it's a link. Saint Vincent of Lerns famously insisted that what is Catholic, he doesn't mean Catholic Church, Catholic teaching, is that what which has been believed always, everywhere, by everyone. So we are going to discuss certain messages from the books in a few minutes. Was it always, everywhere, by everyone? In some of them, it is never. Never heard of before that, before writing these books in three, four years ago. So the first thing, the church doesn't believe in something new. We believe always, and something that is always was there by everyone, everywhere. I'll give you one quick example. If, for example, we are discussing the Immaculate Conception of Virgin Mary as something appeared in the history in 1852, we ask one question, was it always? No. Was it by everyone? We mean every bishop all over the church? No. Was it everywhere? No. Then it's not a Catholic teaching. The same guide will use it to see the teachings that we are going to share in a few minutes. Second thing is, it's the Trinitarian teachings. When we speak about Trinitarian teaching, we are not saying that I can believe and I confess that God is a Trinity. How I am living this Trinitarian life on my daily basis. When I am giving a talk, when I am sharing the good news, is each person in the Trinity showing his participation in my teaching? Or I'm always talking about Christ. And maybe I'm minimizing it more. It's only about the blood of Christ. So if we say that we are a Trinitarian church, we're living a Trinitarian life, and we are, pre are preaching a Trinitarian participation in the life of God. St. John tells us in 3 John chapter 1, 
verse 3 and 4, that we have fellowship, that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and the Son. So we are called for a fellowship with the Father and Son. <clears throat> Saint Paul tells us we have also the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, it's regards and the communion, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So again, when we mean Trinitarian Church, Trinitarian teaching, it's not that I profess that I believe in the Trinity, that every single word, at least if I am writing a book, I have to mention a direct relationship between the Father, a fellowship between the, us and Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. How we can reach this richness of the fellowship of the Holy Trinity? We have one way. It's through the Incarnation. And when we say through the Incarnation, once more, it's very important. It is the whole life of Christ. It's not only the cross. It's not only the blood. It's not only the resurrection. It is the whole life of Christ from <coughs> the Annunciation till his ascension and then pouring out the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. So when we say we believe in the Incarnation, we, we, mean, we mean we believe in every single act he has done, has done it for us. And as Dr. Joseph used to teach us, that in the Creed we say, who for us and for our salvation, and then we have the whole life of Christ from, from the beginning, became man till waiting his second coming as well, to take the whole church to his, his bride with him. So when we say that we are incarnational church, we believe in each and every single act he did. He did it for me and for us as a church. So this is again what we recite in the Creed. Who for us, the other form, we call it the I form, who for me and for my salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy Spirit till his second coming. We are incarnational because our focus and our teaching and preaching and our communication with the person of uh, Jesus Christ and the Holy Trinity is through the whole life of Christ. He didn't do something just to show off. He did everything to give it to us. The very common expression by St. Cyril the Great, he did everything in himself for us, for my sake. So when he was baptized, he was not in need to be baptized. He was baptized in himself to receive the Holy Spirit in himself for my sake, to enable my fallen nature to receive once more the Holy Spirit. This is the meaning of incarnational, incarnational church. Scriptural teachings. When we say scriptural teachings, again, this is St. Irenaeus in his book Against Heresies 311. I'm not going to mention all the references, but it's in your handout, and you'll find it on the screen. He's telling us the scriptures is, cannot be taken away from the life of the church. Why? The church first lived the New Testament, then later, the earliest writings, as we believe, or as most of the scholars said, was written in the year 52. So since the resurrection of our Lord, the year 29 till 52, the church was living the full gospel of the new, or the full message of the New Testament, without a single written word. So St. Irenaeus is telling us, we lived it. I heard St. Polycarp telling me what he lived before it was 
recorded. Here what he says. We have learned from, one, from none others the plan of salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they did at one time proclaim in public before writing it. And at a later period, by the will of God, handed down to us in the scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So when we speak about we are scripture church, it doesn't mean that we are worshiping a text. No, we understand the text within the church. Why? The church first lived the gospel. Then the church members, St. Paul, St. Peter, St. John, wrote the scriptures. And then the church kept the scriptures. And the church was the only way and the only place where we can understand the scriptures properly. Otherwise, you are making your own interpretation, not the church interpretation. So we are scripture not because we have the scripture, because we left the events before recording it, and we kept it according to what has been handed over to us all. Everyone needs a long time, but we are just taking a taste of it before going into our topic today. As I said, it's not only about uh, teaching, it's also a, a glimpse of, of preaching. Let me share with you the words of St. Augustine. It's not a matter of, we would like to know the meaning of this verse. The Lord is talking in a personal way to each one of us. This is the word of St. Augustine. The scriptures are, in fact, in any passage, you care to choose singing of Christ. And he's saying, you have a special song in your ear this morning. Provided we have ears that are capable of picking out the tune, the Lord opens the minds of the apostles so that they understood the scriptures. Here is the prayer of St. Augustine for me and for you. That he will open our minds too is our prayer. Not to be reciting verses or sharing verses, but living, enjoying the singing of Christ in our ears. Ecclesial teaching. Again, it's the creed. So if I'm saying that the church is blinded, the church is dead, I'm against the creed. The creed says, we believe in one holy. As the one I was sharing with us before I start, he was telling us the church, as St. Paul was describing the church in Ephesians chapter 5, it's without wrinkle or spot. Why? Because the Groom is sanctifying here. Every, yes, we as humans, we have our weakness. But the Lord is sanctifying the whole body. The Lord is sanctifying the whole church. And here is what St. Cyprian is encouraging you to abolish and to reject anything against the bride of Christ. I pray maybe one day we can discuss or, or study together this homily by St. Cyprian, it's on the unity of the church. This is chapter 6. The spouse of Christ cannot be defiled. She is uncorrupted and chaste. She knows one home. With chaste modesty, she guards the sanctity of one couch. She keeps us for God. She assigns the children whom she has created to the kingdom. Whoever is separated from the church and is joined with an adulterer, is separated from the promises of the church. Nor will he who has abandoned the church arrive at the rewards of Christ. 
The bus part is very important. He's a stranger, he's a profane, and he's an enemy. He cannot have God as a father who does not have the church as a mother. It's very important. You will see it in a few minutes how many times that the rejection of the church as a mother, even the rejection to mention the church, and in the end, um, uh, ignored the father. You'll find in a few minutes how we even ignored the father because we ignored the mother itself. And this is very important. How come? I'm sure every one of us knows something bad about a local church or something bad globally about a church, any denomination. Does it mean that the spouse has been defiled? Then Cyprian is telling us no. And here, let me share with you the words of St. Philard of Moscow. Today I will share many fathers from the Eastern Orthodox Church for one sake. That many are saying that this teaching are the teaching of OCA or the other family of Orthodoxy. We'll see that even the other family are rejecting harshly what is said in these books. Here is the words of St. Philard of Moscow. The church is holy. Then, if you read any of these books, the church is blinded, the church is dead, the church lost all her riches. Although there are sinners, yes, we know that you are sinners. And we are asking God's mercy many times during our liturgies. There are sinners within here, those who sin but who cleanse themselves with true repentance, will meet what true repentance between brackets and we'll discuss it later, do not keep the church from being holy. Your repentance is a participation in the holiness of the church. But some of them are unrepented, yes. But unrepented sinners are cut off, whether visibly by the church authority or invisible by the judgment of God from the body of the church. And so, in this regard, the church remains holy. The spouse is undefiled. I'll give you one example in a moment. If you imagine St. Athanasius at the very peak of his struggle with Arians. The majority of them, or the majority of the church, even leaders and, and the hierarchy of the government was against him. And he was told, he was told you are anti-cosmos, you are against the world. You can easily say you are a defiled church. I'm leaving now, I'm taking the few of the few, the expression is mentioned many times, and I make the new church, the undefiled church. He never said so. He said, I will remain because the church is one. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. And within this church, I'm going to revive. I'm going to show them the divinity of Christ. And because of that, we are standing here now. Anyone is trying to cut himself off the body, blaming the body of being a profane or defiled, is against the whole principle of having one body in the Church of God. So St. Philart is confirming, so in this regard, the Church remains always and forever holy. Sacramental Church. And here I'm quoting also St. John Corinthians from the Russian Church. And what do we mean, what do we mean by Sacramental Church? It means that every single thing that Christ has done is going to be given to us through a sacrament. If you are doing something by your own to, to earn it, there's something wrong. 
And again, it is the whole life of the church. Let me read the words of St. John and to see what does it mean to have a sacramental life. What then, O brethren, is required for us in order that we might avail ourselves of all, what are you going to attain, of all the grace brought unto us from on high by the coming to earth of the Son of God? Not only the blood, not only the cross, not only the, it's all what we received through the incarnation of the Son of God. What is necessary, first of all, is faith in the Son of God, in the Gospels, as a salvation bestowed, bestowing heavenly teaching, a true repentance of sins and the correction of life and of heart, communion in prayer and in the mysteries, the sacraments, the knowledge and fulfillment of Christ's commands. It's a whole life. Our life is mysterious in Christ. It's a sacramental by all saints. So if I imagine that I can receive the power of his death by my own deeds, is it orthodox? Is it even Christian? If I believe that I can receive the power of his resurrection by my own personal deeds, away totally from the sacraments, can you call it orthodox teaching? Can you call it church father said? We'll see a lot of it in a few minutes. Eucharistic teaching. Let me share with you first the quote of St. Cyril the Great in, his, in Book 4, Chapter 2, in his commentary on the Gospel of St. John. Now, in many occasions, I encourage everyone to read the, later, not uh, today, the two books by St. Cyril the Great on the unity of Christ. It's available online, I think. And also the commentary of St. John, of St. Cyril on the Gospel of St. John. Through the Eucharist, the life of Christ is going to be flow in a great flow in my life. And not only to his word gives he, he power to give life to the dead, but that he might show that his own body was life-giving. If I'm giving you any teaching, ignoring that you can having this life-giving newness of life through anything rather than the Eucharist or at least through many things, rather than the Eucharist. Where we can go from John chapter 6, from verse 53 till 61, where we can go? Where we can go from all the teaching of the first 16 centuries in the church, whether in the East or the West. He touches the dead, thereby also infusing life into those already decayed, and if by the touch alone of his holy flesh he gives life to that which is decayed, how shall we today in the Eucharist, how shall we not profit yet more richly by the life-giving blessing when we also taste it? For it will surely transform into its own good immortality those who partake of it. If I'm giving you any teaching that you can be immortal without the Eucharist, can you call it orthodox? I'm not saying we are whatever. Can you call it an orthodox teaching when you omit totally, never mention? We know that there is one of the ways to teach is teaching by omission. I'm not going to tell you, don't have communion, but I'm not going to mention the communion you at all. Say patristic teaching. 
as I said at the beginning, it's not to say the father said. Tell me which father and where, and also in which context. Because sometimes you are misquoting fathers, saying this father said so and so, while it's totally away from the way he is thinking, the way he is addressing the issues. Again, St. Irenaeus, the father of the whole tradition, in his very famous book, Preaching to the, of the Apostles. This beloved friend is the preaching of the truth. Why? Because we believe in a faith delivered once to all saints, as St. Saint Jude said. The means of our salvation and the way of truth, foretold by the prophets, carried out by Christ, it was delivered to the church by the apostles, and handed down by her to her children throughout the world. Keep this with all certainty, maintaining a sound will, pleasing God, practicing good works, and aiming always at what is right. So when we say the Father said, it means what has been preached by the prophets, fulfilled in Christ, taught to the apostles, and the apostles handed over. Keep this with all certainty, maintaining a sound will, blazing God. This is when we say patristic, this is the meaning of patristic teaching in the church. Synergetic teaching. This is very important. We had our uh, servants retreat was focusing more on this topic. I'm sure very soon it will be online. All along man's road from his fallen state to union with God, divine grace initiates. God is always initiated. We didn't ask him, please come to the cross and save us and rise and take our fallen humanity and ascend into heaven. He initiates everything by himself. In him all sorts of goodness and man with his free will is going to respond positively and actively. Any other teaching is non-orthodox. If I'm telling you, do, 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 that he might give you, it's a semi-blasianism. I'm not going to go through it now, but we will focus more on synergetic teaching. If I'm telling do, do by your own, you by, by yourself are going to gain something, it's a blasphemy, another heresy condemned many times during the church history. So be careful of when you are doing, are you doing by his grace, he's initiating his grace in you, or someone forcing you to do a certain spiritual practice or ascetic practice, whatever it is. Let me share with you two talks. Two words from the church fathers to see it's always synergetic god is always initiating and we are always responding positively and actively first of all saint john christom in his sermon on the words of soul soul and paragraph six god never draws anyone to himself by force and violence no one can force you to do anything he wishes all men to be saved but forces no one. So if anything is something to be enforced in my life, there is something wrong. God is encouraging me. God is initiating and inflaming my heart with love to him, and that's why I would like to go and do it. Sincere of Jerusalem, also in teaching new believers, it is for God to grant his grace. Your task is to accept that grace and to guard it. Very important. You have been given certain gifts in day one when you were baptized. And now, 
you have to guard what you have received. It's a grace given from day one. You can't make it. If you are able to, be ma to make it, you are a plagiarist. Someone who is going to save himself by himself without the grace of God and even without Christ. Because I can make it by myself. Let me read this once more. It is for God to grant his grace. Your task is to accept that grace and to guard it. This is in brief. We can have a very long list and each title has, we can spend days in it. But now we are just briefing this point to check later, is it right what we are going to read together or not? One important thing, three things we will share them, because it is very common in these writings. Did Christ form in us when we were baptized, or we need to form him in us? One of the books we are discussing today is, the title of the book is The Inner Man and Forming Christ. Who is going to form Christ? We'll see now you are required according to the writer, to form Christ. I will share with you something very simple. It's the prayer of the church. We'll see some prayers from that liturgy of consecrating the water before baptism, some prayers from the baptism itself, and as well, as I said, we'll share some prayers from the Greek Orthodox Church to see this is not right. Let me start with... Can you see it? Okay. This is one of the prayers after the consecration of the water. I'm not sure if it's clear in the screen or not. The priest is praying, May Christ take form in them that are going to be baptized. In Arabic, is going to be formed in them. When? Before, this prayer is just before putting immersing the child in the church in the greek church and it's online you can watch find it easily form the image of your christ in him or her who is about to be born again when in day one in the very first moment by immersing him in the baptismal font is going to die and the christ is going to be formed in him many prayers I left a few of them here. What are we going to get? Yes, I'm not talking now about the blessings and what we receive when we are baptized, but I am focusing on what we are going to discuss today. Make them worthy of the grace for which they have presented themselves, that they may receive of your Holy Spirit and may be filled with your divine power. So Christ is formed in them. They will be filled, receive, they will receive the Holy Spirit and will be filled with your divine power. At the very end, after the priest is anointing the child with the 36 anointment, this is what the priest is doing, is breathing on the face of the child or the newly baptized person and telling him, receive the Holy Spirit and be a purified vessel through Jesus Christ our Lord. So at the very first moments of his life in the church, Christ was formed in him. He became a pure vessel. The Holy Spirit indwelt in him, and he became a real temple of God. So, these are prayers. 
The same thing by St. Gregory of Nazianze in his oration number 18. So this is to show that what the church is praying is what the church is teaching, is what the church is living, and this is what we believe. Anything else is alien. St. Gregory of Nazianze, the theologian. After a short interval, he was talking to people who are going to be baptized. After a short interval, wonder succeeded wonder. I will commend the account of it to the ears of the faithful. For two profane minds, nothing that is good is trustworthy. He was approaching that regeneration by water and the spirit, day one again, by which we confess to God the formation and the completion of the Christ-like man. When? In that very, very moment in his baptism. And the transformation and reformation from the earthly to the spirit. So this is what we pray. This is what the church father, I can give you hundreds of quotes, but I'm just sharing a glimpse of each one of them. St. Cyril of Alexandria saying exactly the same in his commentary on Luke chapter 3, verse 21 to 23. He's telling us, For he spoke unto Christ at the time of holy baptism, as though having by him and in him accepted man upon earth to the sonship. So in Christ, in his baptism, man has been accepted in the sonship of God, and I took my participation, according to St. Cyril and St. John Chrysostom, on my day, he calls this day, the personal Pentecost, the day you are going to be baptized. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. For he who is the son by nature, and in truth, and the only begotten son, when he came like unto us, is especially declared to be the Son of God. Who, he wasn't a son before? No. Not as a receiving this for himself. For he was and is, as I said, very Son, but that he might ratify the glory unto us. He did it in his baptism, and now I'm getting my portion of it when I'm getting baptized. More than that, since John Chrysostom says, that on the day of your own personal baptism, you will hear the same word, this is my beloved son or my beloved daughter, of whom I will please. Why? Because I am joining the body of Christ. I am uniting myself to be a living member of the body of Christ. In him all things have been new. We have gained the newness that is in Christ, by whom and with whom, to God the Father, be glory and dominion, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is what we believe. Is St. Gregory of Nazianze, one of the Cabalistian fathers. St. Cyril, if you read St. Cyril again in, John, in his commentary in John chapter 1, and in his commentary to John chapter 7, verse 39 and 30, 7 to 39, and Luke chapter 3, we'll find him saying the same thing many times. We received everything in Christ in day one. Can you give it to the end? One very important question. Why do the church teach and practice ascetic acts and ascetic life? In many occasions, we feel that I'm going to make something for myself. I will share with you, first again, St. Cyril the Great, and one of our Eastern Orthodox fathers, contemporary father, Father Zacharias. So let me start with St. Cyril the Great. Now, as we read in the liturgy of baptism, we heard from St. Gregory of Nazianzen and St. Cyril the Great, 
From day one, Christ is formed in me. St. Basil, we'll share St. Basil in our next talk. He's telling us, from day one, you have received a restored image of God. And we'll explain it later. So I received the image, and there is something called the image of God and likeness of God. By receiving the image, it's a restoration because Adam distorted the image. And then through the grace of God, I'm growing from the image to the likeness. But something happened in between that I sinned, and this image has something to cover it. So my ascetic life is to uncover, to clean the image, and to grow from the image to the likeness once more. Here's what St. Cyril is saying, and then we'll see how Father the Christ is explaining it more. The faithful who have been established in, in grace through the holy baptism, is there any way rather than the baptism? No. If you want to establish in the grace, it's through the baptism. It's the gate of all graces. Must cut away and mortify the Talmud's rising of carnal pleasures and passions by the sharp surgery of what? Of faith and ascetic labors. So you have received the fullness of the grace in day one through the baptism. But you have to keep it, to guard it through faith and ascetic life. Not cutting the body. It's not, not about torturing my body at all. By purifying the heart and being circumcised in the spirit and not in the letter, according to the letter of Mosaic law, was praised as divine Paul testifies. This is in brief what St. Cyril said. Now we are taking it from a contemporary writer, Father Zacharias Zakharov, Archimedes Zacharias, and he has a very famous book, and you have one full chapter, chapter 10. It's with you in the handouts. I'm sharing with you here only three quotes from these handouts. The title of the chapter is On Repentance Within the Body of the Church. Why? Because there is no repentance without the church or outside the body of, of the church. And he's explaining to us why we have an ascetic life, why the Orthodox Church is keen on this ascetic practice. We have been speaking about repentance and the struggle of, for purification. We aspire to nothing other than the excavation of the gift which were bestowed upon us in holy baptism. Because of many circumstances, the way I was brought up, the way I was going, or the school that I went to, whatever, whatever happened in my life, something covered these gifts. The gifts are not used. The full potential of these gifts are not used yet. So the ascetic life is not to form Christ, is not to gain gifts, it's not to gain the grace, but to enjoy the grace that you have already received. All our efforts are an endeavor to retrieve the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, in day one in your baptism. You'll, say, you'll understand why I'm repeating this many times. Which was granted to us at that time. In holy baptism, all the gifts of the Holy Spirit were given to us. In this, we are no different from even the greatest saints. We receive the same gifts as they did and no less. Here he was quoting uh, St. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. 
St. Peter is telling us, Simon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. When I got baptized, I received exactly the same death, same resurrection, same formation of Christ as St. Peter and St. Paul. When I have the communion, I have the same participation in the same body and blood of Christ as the apostles were around him in the day when he instituted the sacrament. And as St. Paul was instituted the sacrament, we have no difference. We receive the same gift. It's how, for, from my human side, I'm cooperating with such grace because we all receive the same grace, precious as ours. Another quote from the same chapter, you have the whole chapter. Our effort and ascetical struggle must therefore be directed towards the cleansing, the scrapping off of the layer of the grim which has accumulated over the spiritual heart. From day one, you have the fullness of the gift. But now, you have to do the cleansing, the scrapping off of the layer of the grim. He's again explaining what St. Cyril the Great told us a few minutes ago. As you have seen previously, this struggle for purification gradually opens up an area of spiritual activity in the heart in which each one of us may develop the gift of real priesthood, one of the many precious gifts received by us where, when, in the Holy Baptism. One last quote by, Saint, by Father Zacharias, again to tell us when we read a real Orthodox teaching, is showing us everything. He's talking about the sacraments as the source of all the grace. He's telling us about the work of the Holy Spirit and of the work of, of the Son. And here he's telling us about the synergy. Grace initiates this change in him. It is not you who can initiate it. It's only the grace of God can initiate. You can respond positively, not by force, but positively and willingly. Grace initiates this, this change in us, in him. But in order for this grace to bear fruit, he must live as a member by his own, worshiping by his own, no, member of the worshiping body that is the church, its ecclesial teaching. The church being the assembly of the saints through whom God speaks and in whom is reflected. Our common membership unites us to our brethren who continuously stand before God and this allows us to test ourselves safely. For the saints have themselves traveled the road of purification, and as members of the worshiping body of the church, they participate in the divine purity, which is nowhere to be found outside this body. Can you find it outside this body? It's a lie. It's non-ecclesial. It's non-Tritarian. It's non-incarnational. It's non-synergetic as well. The last one by, Saint, by Father Zacharias. The baptismal covenant is renewed in the sacrament of confession. It's only not about, when we speak about baptism, we don't ignore others. It is a renewal. The sacrament of confession. In confession, we turn to the church. Again, it's ecclesial. We turn to the church, not to anyone else, not to follow a person. We are following the faith which was delivered once to all saints. Bringing with us all our falseness. We are not ashamed of our sins. We are coming to be cleansed. Our failures and all our shortcomings. 
We lay ourselves bare before the church in all humility, not shaming the church that she is dead or blind. And she freely grants us with such that which we could never have acquired of ourselves out of the church, we can get nothing. That which we could never have attained. I say, the church gives freely as the body of the saints, both in heaven and on earth. She freely transmits her treasures of sanctity and purity to her members. In the sacrament of confession, we receive the grace of Christ in the fellowship of his saints. Once more. You cannot make it, it's bestowed upon you from day one, and you restore it, you renew it through the sacrament of confession and, of course, the Eucharist. The last thing is just one screen. Again, if you attended with us last retreat, servant retreat, we spoke about it many times. Lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi. The law of prayer is the law of belief, is the law of life. We can't separate the three of them. The way the church is praying, as we have seen, what we prayed in the liturgy of baptism is what we believe. And this is how we should live. I cannot do what is already done in the baptism. I cannot form Christ while he is formed in me in day one. I can repent for cleansing. I can repent to to take the scrapping off, as Father Zachariah was saying. Like, I cannot make any discrepancy to what the church is praying, what the church is believing, and then how we can live. So if my life is against the law of prayer, there is something wrong. If my life is against the law of belief, there is something wrong. So it's a journey for all of us to know how to live this fullness and wholeness of the beauty of the church of God. May the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you from now and forever and ever. Amen.